Sit back. What NFC East quarterback? Relax. In the movie Ocean's Eleven. Put on your think cap. What prized possession did Danny Ocean get ready for the show? In chemistry, what is the name of the principal? And here's your host. During what year was the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Kevin. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to Think Cap. My name is Kevin, and it is my pleasure to be your host. For those of you tuning in for the first time, let me go over how this podcast is structured. At the beginning of the show, I will pose usually about 10 trivia questions to you and then give you a few moments to think of your answers. Then I will go through each question one by one and give you the answer and the history or the data or some fun facts behind the answer. So this isn't your standard trivia outfit that just gives you a question and an answer. I'll give you a brief breakdown that will hopefully satisfy all your curious minds out there while also entertaining you with my banter. My goal is that even if you're not the biggest trivia buff in the world, ThinkCap will become your go-to podcast to supplement your knowledge, to help you learn a little bit along your commutes to home or school, or even when you're just hanging out at home and want to learn something new. The show is all general trivia topics, so you never know what you're going to get each week. If you are a fan of the show or enjoy what you're about to hear, I ask that you would please recommend the podcast to a friend or to a fellow trivia lover. Getting the word out there about ThinkCap really helps my ability to grow and to produce more content for you guys. Um, Speaking of content, in order to keep up with everything uh, ThinkCap, you can follow at ThinkCap, T-H-I-N-K-K-A-P on Instagram or follow on Facebook with the same name. I post fun facts and historical events. And I've been talking about merch giveaways. Stay tuned in this episode to find out how you can win a free ThinkCap t-shirt. So be on the lookout for that. And with that said, let me once again welcome you to ThinkCap and let's get this show started. All right, so once again, like I said, I've got a couple different questions for you today. And what I'm going to do is read each question for you, give you a couple moments to think about each one, and then I will go through and break down each question one by one. So sit back, relax, and let me read these questions for you. Question number one. What is the only FBS football stadium from which you can look into a different state? Once again, what is the only FBS football stadium from which you can look into a different state? Question number two. What cartoon character's name was inspired by the scat singing in Frank Sinatra's song, Strangers in the Night? Once again, what cartoon character's name was inspired by the scat singing in Frank Sinatra's song, Strangers in the Night? Question number three, what is the name of the scale used to measure the heat or pungency of spicy foods like peppers? Once again, what is the name of the scale used to measure the heat or pungency of spicy foods like peppers? Question number four. What is the name for a linguistic blend of words in which parts of multiple words or their sounds are combined into a new word? As in smog, a blend of smoke and fog, or motel, from motor and hotel. 
So one more time. What is the name for a linguistic blend of words in which parts of multiple words or their sounds are combined into a new word? Question number five. At the end of what time period did the dinosaurs go extinct? Once again, at the end of what time period did the dinosaurs go extinct? Question number six. The asteroid belt separates what two planets? Once again, the asteroid belt separates what two planets? Question number seven. How many semitones are there in an octave? Once again, how many semitones are there in an octave? Question number eight. Considered the most difficult song to appear ever in a Guitar Hero game, the song Through the Fire and Flames was written by what band? Once again, considered the most difficult song to ever appear in a Guitar Hero game, the song Through the Fire and Flames was written by what band? Question number nine. What animal's name comes from an Arabic term meaning he who walks swiftly? Once again, what animal's name comes from an Arabic term meaning he who walks swiftly. And question number 10, this is going to be our last question of this week's podcast. Who lit the torch at the opening of the 1996 Olympics? Once again, who lit the torch at the opening of the 1996 Olympics? All right, so now that I have read all of the questions this week for you and have given you a couple moments to think of your answers, I'm going to go through and read each question one by one and give you a little bit of detail behind each answer. So let's get started with question number one. Question number one was, what is the only FBS football stadium from which you can look into a different state? And your correct answer the stadium is Joan C. Edwards Stadium at Marshall University. The stadium at Marshall is the right answer. This stadium is one of only two in NCAA Division I to be named exclusively for a woman. There are some stadiums that are um, named after a couple, so it would be a man and a woman, but this is one of two named exclusively for a woman. The other would be Williams Bryce Stadium at South Carolina. So Williams Bryce and Joan C. Edwards, the only two women to have uh, stadiums named after them. Marshall University is located on the western border of West Virginia, and its stadium in which the Thundering Herd plays their football games is positioned just so that you can see over the Ohio River into the state of Ohio. Many people, rightfully so, of course, think of the 1970 tragedy when they think of Marshall's football program. 75 people perished on that November 14th evening when the team's charter plane clipped some trees as it approached a runway. 
At the time, under NCAA rules, freshmen were not allowed to play on the varsity team, so those players were not on the trip and their lives were spared. The following season after the tragedy in 1971, those now second-year players and the incoming freshmen played the season officially as the Young Thundering Herd. Uh, Marshall actually changed the name of the team for that season to the Young Thundering Herd as the NCAA gave the program a waiver to allow the freshmen to play. They only won two games that season, the first in their home opener and the second in the homecoming game, both big emotional victories at their home stadium, of course. But because we started this discussion talking about the stadium, it is worth noting that these games were played in their old stadium, named Fairfield Stadium, which was just over a mile away from Joan C. Edwards Stadium, which was opened in 1991. And question number two was, what cartoon character's name was inspired by the scat singing in Frank Sinatra's song, Strangers in the Night? And your correct answer is Scooby-Doo. Yes, Scooby-Doo is the right answer. The song Strangers in the Night was recorded on April 11th of 1966, which was about one month before the rest of the album, which was titled with the same name. One of the most memorable and recognizable features of the record is Sinatra's scat improvisation of the melody with the syllables dooby dooby doo as the song fades to the end. In vocal jazz, scat singing is a vocal improv with wordless vocals, nonsense, syllables, or just even without words at all. In scat singing, the singer improvises melodies and rhythms using the voice as an instrument rather than as a speaking medium for lyrics. Louis Armstrong's 1926 record of Heebie Jeebies is often cited as the first song to employ scatting, but there are other prominent ragtime artists who employed scatting dating back to around 1911. Sinatra himself actually despised the song and hated playing it live, calling it at one time a piece of you-know-what and the worst blank song I have ever heard. So he thought that of his own song, but despite his despise for it, for the first time in 11 years, he had a number one hit, and the song remained on the charts for about 15 weeks. Now, fast forward to 1968, where CBS television executive Fred Silverman heard the song Strangers in the Night during a red-eye flight to the developmental meeting for a Saturday morning cartoon. The cartoon that they were working on, its lead characters were based on a show called The Many Loves of Dobie Gills, and Silverman decided that he wanted to have a dog character play a secondary role because of how easily it could be merchandised. When he was listening to that song on that flight, he heard Sinatra sing the nonsense phrase, Dooby Dooby Doo, and Silverman misheard the phrase as Scooby Dooby Doo. After that, he decided to name the show Scooby-Doo, Where Are You, and centered the show around the canine character. There's actually a brief homage to the origin of Scooby-Doo's name in the film Scooby-Doo 2, Monsters Unleashed. In the movie, Scooby-Doo and Shaggy uh, briefly perform a duet of Strangers in the Night, and it's kind of a humorous parody of the song, but it really is a pretty neat callback to the origins of the name of the franchise. All right, and question number three was, what is the name of the scale 
used to measure the heat or pungency of spicy foods like peppers. And your correct answer is the Scoville scale. The Scoville scale was named after its creator, American pharmacist Wilbur Scoville, who, whose 1912 method is known as the Scoville organoleptic test. On this scale, common hot peppers like jalapenos or poblanos reside between 2,500 and 5,000 Scoville heat units. Common peppers with greater heat intensity, such as a habanero, would have an SHU score between 100,000 and 300,000. Now, if you go all the way up, the Buchalokia ghost pepper has a score of over 1 million SHUs, and the Carolina Reaper has a blazing score of over 2 million SHUs. Now, when these peppers are combined with other elements to make hot sauces and things like that, you may not experience the full brunt of these values because of how the Scoville scale works. If you ever wondered how they came up with the units for these hot peppers, this is what they do, or what they did. An exact weight of dried pepper is dissolved in alcohol to extract the capsaicinoids, or part of the pepper which gives it its heat, and then it's diluted in a solution of sugar water. Decreasing concentrations of the extracted capsaicinoids are given to a panel of five trained testers until three or more of the panelists can no longer detect the heat in the dilution. The heat level is then based on their scores and rated in multiples of 100 SHU. Nowadays, though, we use a more sophisticated method of high-performance liquid chromatography, or HPLC. What this does is measure the concentration of the heat-producing capsaicinoids in a sample of dry pepper. The reading from the HPLC test is then converted into Scoville heat units. For reference, about 1,000 Scoville heat units is approximately corresponding to 6.6 milligrams of capsaicinoids. Um, I'm not a huge heat guy myself. I can enjoy some hot wings every once in a while, and I'll dabble with a drop of that extra hot sauce. But I know some people, and I know it's a cultural thing in some cuisines as well, but I know some people who will put that stuff on everything, and I really just cannot understand the intrigue of burning your mouth off as just part of every single meal that you try to enjoy. All right, and that brings us to question number four, which was, what is the name for a linguistic blend of words in which parts of multiple words or their sounds are combined into a new word, as in smog, a blend of smoke and fog, or motel, from motor and hotel? And your correct answer is a portmanteau. Portmanteau, P-O-R-T-M-A-N-T-E-A-U, portmanteau, is your right answer and this question is going to be the one where i'm going to tell you how you can win a free think cap t-shirt so what you're going to do now that i told you what a portmanteau is i'm going to have you comment a portmanteau of your choice onto the think cap post which announced this episode episode 11 and that will enter you into a drawing for a free ThinkCap t-shirt. So I'll give it about a week after this episode's released. Um, I'm going to take everybody who comments a portmanteau on the Instagram post. And I will assign everybody a random number and pick a random winner of the ThinkCap t-shirt 
giveaway. So that's what we're going to do for uh, this question. That's what we're going to do for the first giveaway of a ThinkCap t-shirt. So I hope that you guys all are excited about that and will participate. I think it's going to be a fun way to uh, get everybody involved without necessarily just giving away an answer or what we're doing if you haven't listened to the podcast yet. So I appreciate you guys for listening. And now let me tell you a little bit more about what a portmanteau is. So first, let me tell you about what a portmanteau is not. It is different than a contraction in that contractions are formed by words that typically appear next to each other in everyday speech, such as I won't instead of I will not. So won't would be the contraction there. It also varies from a compound word that simply takes two entire words and mashes them together to form a new word, such as roadblock. A portmanteau is formed by combining elements from two or more existing words that each have unique definitions, but at the same time relate to a singular concept. The word portmanteau was first used in this sense by Lewis Carroll in his 1871 book, Through the Looking Glass. For those of you who do not know, Through the Looking Glass is the sequel to Carroll's ever-popular Alice in Wonderland. In the novel, Humpty Dumpty explains to Alice the coinage of the unusual words used in the nonsense poem entitled Jabberwocky. One of the phrases he explains is the word mimsy, which is a combination of miserable and flimsy. He says, quote, you see, it's like a portmanteau. There are two meanings packed up into one word. At the time, portmanteau was the word for a suitcase which opened up into two equal parts, but after Carroll's use of the term as a simile for words mashed together, it took on a completely new meaning and has become the common grammatical term for these types of words. Okay, and question number five was, at the end of what time period did the dinosaurs go extinct? And your correct answer is at the end of the Cretaceous period. Cretaceous is the right answer. The dinosaurs went extinct about 65 million years ago after ruling the Earth for about 165 million years. And I know this is a lot of time, so to help quantify these vast times for you, let's take this example. If all of Earth time from the very beginning of the dinosaurs to today was compressed into one calendar year, 365 days, with again the dinosaurs appearing on January 1st, they would have become extinct at about the third week of September. Now using the same scale, Homo sapiens, or modern humans, have only been on Earth since December 31st, or New Year's Eve. So that just helps to contextualize how long dinosaurs were on this planet for But again, it just makes you wonder how did they die off at the end of the Cretaceous period. And there are many theories about what killed off the dinosaurs all that time ago. Some are more likely than others. And everyone has their own ideas about what could have caused the sudden and massive extinction. One early theory was that small mammals ate dinosaur eggs, thereby reducing the dinosaur population until it became unsustainable. Another theory was that the dinosaurs' bodies became too big to be operated by their tiny brains. 
Some scientists believed a great plague decimated the dinosaur population and then spread to the animals that feasted on their carcasses. Starvation was another possibility. Large dinosaurs required vast amounts of food and could have stripped bare all of the vegetation in their habitat. Another theory is that a supernova, which is an explosion of a dying star, could have even showered the earth in radiation, which killed off all the dinosaurs. Nowadays, though, there is one major prevailing theory that I'm sure you are familiar with, and it has to do with a massive meteor striking the earth and wiping out the majority of its large animals. In 1991, this theory was further pushed when a massive meteor crater, which is 110 miles in diameter, was discovered on the edge of the Yucatan Peninsula, which extends into the Gulf of Mexico. The crater was named the Chixcalob Crater, I think I said that right, uh, named for a nearby village. Scientists believe that it was formed by a massive body, which was approximately six miles in diameter, striking the Earth at 40,000 miles per hour, which released two million times more energy than the most powerful nuclear bomb ever detonated. The heat would have broiled the Earth's surface, igniting wildfires worldwide and plunging the planet into a darkness as debris clouded the atmosphere. Mile-high tsunamis would have washed over the continents, drowning many forms of life, and shockwaves would have triggered earthquakes and volcanic eruptions all around the world. All of the dust, dirt, and debris would, that was sent into the air would result in darkness that could have lasted for months or possibly years. It would end up plunging the Earth's temperatures into the freezing zone, which killed plants and leaving herbivores with nothing to eat. Many dinosaurs would have died within weeks, and the carnivores who feasted on the dinosaurs who passed would have died a month or two later. Overall, the loss of biodiversity would have just been tremendous. Um, only small scavenging mammals that could burrow into the ground and eat whatever remained would have survived. And that's kind of how life prevailed on Earth. That's the theory there. Um, and yeah, this theory just kind of explains a little bit more than some of the other theories maybe have the ability to. And honestly, minus all the gods and the warfare, the dinosaurs' uh, meteor doomsday theory kind of sounds like the Norse legend of Ragnarok that I talked about in the last episode. Alright, question number six was the asteroid belt separates what two planets? And your correct answer is it separates Mars and Jupiter. Mars and Jupiter is the right answer. The average distance between the two planets... Um, as they circle the sun, it's not a perfect circle. So this is the average distance. 342,012,346 miles. A vast space between Mars and Jupiter. Um, between that space is what we know as the asteroid belt. Johann Titus, an 18th century German astronomer, noted a mathematical pattern in the layout of the planets and used it to predict the existence of another planet between Mars and Jupiter. Now, astronomers were unable to find the missing body until 1800, when two large bodies known as Ceres and Pallas were discovered, and both of these bodies were believed to be planets for some time. But as more and more and more were found in that same region, with over 100 being found by the 19th century, it became clear that the 
Objects were not planets and they began to be referred to as asteroids. Today we believe that early in the life of the solar system, dust and rock circling the sun were pulled together by gravity to form our planets, but not all of that material was completely enveloped, leaving the asteroid belt to circle the sun as it does today. There are more than 16 asteroids in the asteroid belt with a diameter greater than 150 miles. The largest asteroids, Vesta, Pallas, and Hygieia, are at least 250 miles long. Ceres, which I mentioned earlier was one of the first bodies to be discovered, is a part of the asteroid belt, but it's actually now classified as a dwarf planet. It's about 590 miles in diameter, which is about a quarter of the size of our moon, and it's actually so big that it accounts for approximately one-third of the mass of the entire asteroid belt. And that brings us to question number seven, which was how many semitones are there in an octave? And your correct answer is 12 semitones. First, an octave is the name for an interval between one musical pitch and another musical pitch. An octave, fascinatingly enough, is not an arbitrary man-made musical tool. Rather, each octave represents a sound wave with double the frequency of the one before it. If this is a new concept to you, I encourage you to look up the harmonic series. So just Google search harmonic series. You'll find images of a string vibrating at different wavelengths that might help you to grasp the concept a little bit further. The difference between the first harmonic and the second harmonic is an octave. It has double the frequency, as is the second and the fourth harmonic and so on. So like I said, look up the harmonic series and that might make a little bit more sense to you if you're unfamiliar. But um, like I said, each octave is divided into 12 equal semitones. Semitones are the smallest music interval in classical Western music. There are two types of semitones that are worth noting chromatic semitones and diatonic semitones. The term chromatic means that it's basically every single semitone, so all of the semitones are chromatic, but diatonic means only semitones which are a member of the major or minor scale, and I could go on and on about music theory, breaking down the major and the minor scale and all that stuff, as classical composition really relies on a very intricate and detailed system. But the most interesting part to me is simply that music and notes and beats that our brains perceive as good and harmonious are made up by sound waves of certain frequencies which match each other physically and mathematically in wavelength. I just think it is so cool that what we perceive as good music is actually scientifically pretty cohesive as well. All right, question number eight was considered the most difficult song to appear in a Guitar Hero game ever. The song Through the Fire and Flames was written by what band? And your correct answer is Dragon Force. Dragon Force is the right answer. They are a British power metal band that is known for their fast tempo, speedy solos, and powerful vocals. Their lyrics are almost exclusively fantasy themed, and their musical style has been likened to Journey meets Slayer. And honestly, I think that's a pretty decent comparison. They're pretty unique, kind of nerdy, but they, they, they make some fun music. 
Through the Fire and Flames itself was their first track and first single from their third studio album, which was entitled Inhuman Rampage from the year 2006. After gaining exposure when uh, Guitar Hero 3 was released in 2007, their lead single from their fourth album, entitled Heroes of Our Time, that's the name of the song, not the album, was nominated for a Grammy Award in 2009 under the category of Best Metal Performance. I guess I should clarify there that the song is Heroes of Our Time from the album, which was entitled Ultra Beatdown. Um, the band has a style that's definitely not going to be popular for everyone, but I do like a good amount of their songs, and I would recommend them for anyone who wants a, a break from their normal music rotation. They're definitely, definitely different. Um, Heroes of Our Time, which was the one nominated for the Grammy, and Operation Ground and Pound are two of my favorites. Their last album, which was accurately entitled Extreme Power Metal, was released in the year 2009. So they're definitely an interesting group, uh, definitely a little nerdy with their fantasy themes and all those things. But as far as Through the Fire and Flames goes, there have been a couple of people to successfully FC the song, which is Guitar Hero Lingo for full combo, meaning that they hit 100% of the notes. That's fascinating to me. Um, I played some Guitar Hero back in the day. I was pretty good. I could play on Expert. I could beat most songs, never beat Through the Fire and Flames. I did beat it on Hard, but Expert, I could just never get through that beginning um, intro. And if you've played the game or if you've watched anybody try and attempt uh, to beat Through the Fire and Flames, you'll be amazed at how fast the uh, notes come in at you, especially during that first intro. I've never gotten past it. But anyway, like I was saying, there was... Uh, a couple people to do it. The first to do it was a guy named Chris Chike, who posted his successful attempt on June 3rd of 2008, which was about eight months after the game was released in October 28th of 2007. That really just goes to show how difficult it was that it took. I mean, obviously he wasn't practicing the song for the entire eight months, but eight months after the release of the game, it took for somebody to successfully 100% through the fire and flames that really speaks to its overall difficulty and question number nine was what animal's name comes from an arabic term meaning he who walks swiftly and your correct answer is the giraffe giraffe is the right answer I'm going to butcher this, as I do a lot of my pronunciations of other languages, but the original Arabic word was zarafa, which, as stated in the question, translates roughly to he who walks swiftly or fast walker. An old English name for giraffes was actually camelopard, and it's kind of an archaic English name for the giraffe, which derived from the ancient Greek for camel and leopard, referring to its camel-like shape and it's leopard-like coloring, so kind of accurate, I guess. Not really the same type of animal, but they definitely got those two parts right. Um, it's interesting, too, talking about the giraffe's patterning. Giraffe spots are much like human fingerprints. No two giraffes have the same pattern. Um, both male and female giraffes have uh, distinct hair-covered horns called ossicones. And everyone knows giraffes as being the tallest mammals to walk the earth. The African animals primarily live in the savannas and woodlands from Chad in the north to South Africa in the south, 
and from Niger in the west to Somalia in the east. So they kind of live within that region. Their long necks allow them to eat vegetation, leaves, fruits, and flowers from the tallest of trees, which other herbivores cannot reach. And humorously enough, for as long as they are, a giraffe's neck is too short to reach the ground. As a result, a giraffe must awkwardly spread its front legs or kneel to reach the ground for a drink of water. And giraffes only need to drink water once every few days, as most of their hydration comes from the plants that they consume daily. They also do not require much sleep, only resting for 5 to 30 minutes per day, which is often achieved in quick 1 to 2 minute naps that they spread throughout the day. Man, wouldn't that be nice if that was the case for humans? Um, but likewise, giraffes spend most of their lives standing up, and they do things like sleeping and giving birth while standing. And videos of baby giraffes attempting to walk are always very cute and funny. Uh, this is going to be another recommendation of mine. If you haven't seen them, maybe skip the giving birth part, but you can watch uh, some videos of baby giraffes attempting to walk for the first time. It's, it's pretty humorous. Um, but also it's amazing because the giraffe calves can stand up and walk after only about an hour into their existence. So they're born and within an hour they are standing up and walking. So you can't blame the little guys for having some struggles considering how young they are, but um, yeah, overall just pretty fascinating animals and um, definitely a joy to watch and to see in zoos. And that brings us to question number 10, which is the final question of this week's podcast. The question was, who lit the torch at the opening of the 1996 Olympics? Who lit the torch? And your correct answer is Muhammad Ali. Yes, Muhammad Ali, the legendary heavyweight boxer, was 54 years old when he was selected to the honor of lighting the Olympic torch to kick off the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta. The Olympic Committee hesitated to select him at first because there was a perception of him being a draft dodger. However, former NBC executive Dick Ebersol kept pushing and kept arguing for Muhammad Ali to be the last leg of the torch's long run. He said that Ali was, quote, a man of great moral principle in standing firm on his anti-war beliefs and argued that Ali did not run away from his country, but that he was, was willing to go to prison when he was found guilty. Ebersol would also say, quote, Muhammad Ali may be, outside of perhaps the Pope, the most beloved figure in the world. In the third world, he's a hero. In the Muslim world, he's a hero and a fellow traveler. And then eventually he convinced the committee to pick Muhammad Ali. Upon selecting committee, they kept the identity of the torchlighter a secret. And I believe that's a tradition. I think that's pretty commonplace for that to happen. But when Ali stepped out at the opening ceremony to light the torch, Ebersol says that it was the greatest collective gasp that he had ever heard. Um, all the people there in Atlanta obviously loving Muhammad Ali as the athlete, much like Ebersol thought was the case, were very excited to see the legendary athlete up there being a representative for the American people to light the torch. And actually, the torch almost didn't light the Olympic flame as the, the cauldron was overpacked as to not have enough oxygen flow for it to ignite. 
But in the end, Ali stood there and he held the flame for long enough that it allowed uh, enough propellant to burn off to light the rocket, which I believe is what it's called. And we were left with an iconic memory and some iconic photographs of Muhammad Ali proudly standing with the Olympic torch representing the great United States of America. And now that brings us to the end of our show. If you have made it this far, I thank you for hanging out with me, and I hope that you learned a little bit. If you enjoyed the show, I would ask you to please review, like, and subscribe, or follow if you can. Um, if you didn't like the show, just forget about it, pretend it never even happened, but any feedback from you guys is huge, and it really helps to take this podcast to the next level. Um, remember the question number four giveaway, comment, any portmanteau that has not already been posted on the Instagram post which announces this episode, episode 11, and you will be entered into a drawing to win a free ThinkCap t-shirt. So if you don't follow on Instagram, it's at T-H-I-N-K-K-A-P. Um, you can follow on Facebook with the same name. Um, on those pages, I post links to the streaming platforms where this show is available, and I also post other fun content to keep you thinking throughout the week. In addition, I always love to hear what you guys want to learn. If you have any fun trivia facts, like the first question of this week's podcast, which was given to me by a ThinkCap fan. Um, I thought that one was really cool. I didn't know that one. So um, I do try to integrate those. I try to integrate what you guys want to hear into the show. So uh, leave any feedbacks or comments on ThinkCap social media posts. Let me know what kind of stuff you want to hear in every week's episode, and I will try my best to make that happen. So once again, I thank you guys for listening. I will catch you next week, and take care. Put your hand.